it's been my pleasure uh, to be able to uh, not just spend time with you all, but be able to deliver God's word to you. And I, I do pray that uh, as the spirit speaks and, and challenges us, that uh, his word would not return void, that seeds planted would be uh, watered and that God would reap a harvest in all of our lives through his word um, for his glory. Tonight, we conclude with the doxology as Jude concludes this letter. Uh, there's tremendous depth uh, far beyond what we've been able to um, dive into this week. Um, but here it's a fitting conclusion as he began saying that he was speaking and writing to those who were called beloved in God and kept for Jesus. Those who mercy, peace and love have been poured out to verses one and two. Now in verse 24, he says, now to him who is able to keep you. Um, we had talked last night about uh, this transition in verse 17, where he redirects his attention from those who had crept in, who were ungodly. This is verse four, uh, perverting grace and following their own passions, um, denying Jesus as Lord and Savior. In 17, he transitions back to the church to focus um, his concluding words to to them and to us. And so we talked last night about keeping ourselves in the love of God, waiting for Jesus Christ and his return, living with a view toward eternity and snatching those out of the fire, um, living with our eyes wide open to the lostness of the people around us. So tonight, it's doxology. Dox, we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, a doxology comes from a Greek word doxos, which means to praise. And so the doxology of Jude's concluding remarks is to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And so Jude would tell us and have us know and be reminded over and over and over again that God will protect us. Alright, we're going to look at, at three lessons from Jude here in this doxology. And the first of those is that God will protect us to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is God's protection over His children. That He who began a good work, Philippians 1, will bring it to completion. The doxology that Paul writes at the end of 1 Thessalonians, he says that um, God will do it. That God will do it. God will bring us to the end. And so God protects. The question that we ask is, how can God keep us from stumbling? We have this truth that Jude puts in front of us now to him who is able. He is able to keep us from stumbling. So how can he do that? That's the question. Uh, I mentioned, I believe, on Sunday morning that uh, our, our son just recently came out of a cast. This was his third break. Uh, he's done foot, collarbone and now arm. But he hasn't even gotten close to his sister that's one up in the line. We have three girls and a boy, uh, Will's sister that's closest to him, Micaiah, she's getting ready to turn nine, ten, oh my goodness, getting ready to turn ten 
Well, by age six, she had five broken bones and we had been in 13 casts, maybe by age seven. Is that right? By age seven, five broken bones, 13 casts, lots of x-rays, and I'm hoping to have her arms paid off by the time she gets married. So she at least goes goes into that relationship without a dowry, right? You know, that got, got those bills paid. So I'm, we're making payments on all that. Uh, five broken bones, three times in the same spot, uh, two surgeries with pins, and we had her tested, no brittle bone, no vitamin deficiencies, you know, healthy, strong as an ox, and accident prone. Uh, she did her wrist twice, fell off the bathroom sink on one of them, uh, can't remember how she did the other one. Jumped off a swing, fell, caught herself. So five breaks, all on her left arm, 13 casts, couple surgeries, and just, you know, the kind of kid that you see him fall and you're, <gasps> you're holding your breath, you're waiting for him to get up gimpy. And, and so when I think about how would I keep, how would I keep Micaiah from stumbling? Now, this, we're talking physical, literal here. Now, in this sense, now verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, there is a physical, there is a spiritual reality to this. Now, for me, how do I keep my, my almost 10-year-old girl from stumbling? Well, on the very practical sense, I would have to be with her 24-7. I would have to walk with her down the stairs I would have to go with her into the bathroom to make sure she didn't climb up on a sink. 24-7 under my watchful eye. I would have to. That would be the only way that I could keep her from stumbling. Because I don't trust that she would get up off the couch and head to the kitchen and not stumble. That's I just wait for it to happen. I would have to follow her step for step all day long. To keep her from stumbling. And I would also have to have the power. Not just the presence. But also the power. So that. There's no limitations on my end. Because I'm I'm not infallible. I'm not perfect. So not only would I have to be with her step for step. But I would also have to have the ability. To hold her up. So that there's an assurance on my end that if she's walking down the steps and she doesn't trip and stumble, that I'm not going to lose a grip on her either and keep her from falling. Now, and and that's impossible, right? We as parents can't bubble wrap our kids. You you can't be with them 24-7 and you are also weak yourself. And yet we have a Heavenly Father who is able to keep us from stumbling. He is always present. Always. Psalm 139, the Psalm of David, he says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go into the very depths of the earth, there you are. I can't get away from you. There's there's nowhere that we can go. Away from the very presence of God, Joshua 1, 9, as God's people were, were getting ready to go into the land of their inheritance. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. Have I not commanded you, says the Lord? Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be scared. Don't be frightened. 
And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There is nowhere that you will ever go that the very presence of God is not with you. I love Hebrews 13.5 and the promise there. It's, it's one worthy of much memorization and meditation and reflection. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. I, I, I hear it. I put it in, in these terms. I am always with you. And I am always for you. Even Jesus' final words to His disciples in Matthew 28, Go therefore into all the world, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then do you remember the end there of the Great Commission? And lo, behold, I am with you. I am with you. It, it was the bookend in Matthew's Gospel of the way that he began to talk about Jesus in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy as Emmanuel, God with us. He, he began God with us and He ended, I am with you. He must be always present to keep us from stumbling and the good news is He is. And He must be all powerful. Zephaniah 3.17, I was talking with Jared this afternoon about a book that I read several years ago that uh, I have given out and come back to uh, in multiple times. I have passed it out uh, to people to, to read, to minister to, because I have a tendency to look at my heavenly father as a heavenly judge and to relate more to him like a judge than a father. That's uh, I don't want to say that that's true of all of us, but that is something that I've struggled with in my Christian walk, that if I, if I get out of line, then my heavenly judge is going to strike the gavel and I'm going to hear condemnation. So I've got to walk the line. I've got to toe the line. And uh, a book by Sam Storms called The Singing God essentially asks the question, what is God doing now over your life? And he answers the question and the entire book is a an exposition of Zephaniah 3.17. And in Zephaniah 3.17, here's the answer to that question. What's God doing right now? It says, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty. A mighty one who will save. He is with you. And He is powerful to save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love and He will exult over you with loud singing. The title of Storm's, Sam Storm's book is The Singing God. God is in your midst. He is mighty to save you. He rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets, quiets you with His love and He exults over you with loud singing. That, that is a concept of God that you and I need. To, to know and to hold on to. That God exults over us with loud singing. That He quiets us with His love. That He is in our midst and He is powerful to save. How can I keep my daughter from stumbling? Well, the reality is I can't. But if I could, I would always have to be with her. And I'd have to be powerful enough to take care of her every step of the way. 
And I'm not either one of those things. And God is for us. The doxology for Jude ends with He is able. He is able to keep you from stumbling because He is present and He is powerful in your life. What happens when you stumble? This is, a, this is an important question for us because His ability to keep us from stumbling doesn't mean that there aren't going to be stumbles in our life along the way. I would love to be able to say to you that you will walk out of here uh, in, in humble victory for the rest of your life over all sin. And, and the reality is that you and I have remaining sin within us until our death or the return of Christ. Either one. So the way that theologians talk about the reality of sin is that sin has a penalty. Death, hell, condemnation, judgment. And, and Christ bore that for us on the cross. It is finished. Sin has real power in our life. So Romans chapter 6, Paul gives the church an admonition to not present ourselves as slaves any longer to sin. Sin's power has been broken, but you can submit yourself again and experience real power of sin in your life. Yet its power has been broken. You're not a slave to it. You you can, by God's grace and in His strength and life and abiding, say no, truly, to sin. Because it is not your master. Jesus is. So sin's penalty and sin's power, but sin's presence still remains. It, it remains within us and will until Christ returns or He calls us home. And so what happens when, not if, we stumble. Well, I say when, not if, because that is what we face. And there are reasons for that. Satan and the world's temptations are, are real and they are strong. Sin remains. And like we talked about last night of this primary verb in the midst of verses 17 through 23 keep yourselves in the love of God, we get lax and, and lazy and disobedient at times in our life. So when this happens, when we stumble, there are some realities for us. And, and I'm going to read to you the London Baptist Confession. This was a formative foundational document for Baptists in the early part of uh, the foundation of our, our country. And so this confession that rallied and was a doctrinal, um, a doctrinal statement for Baptists, uh, this one was written in 1689. And, and so there's a lot here, but I want to read it for you. Follow along with me, I'm going to summarize. Though we may, through the temptation of Satan in the world, this is chapter 17 of the London Baptist Confession, 1689. Though we may, through the temptation of Satan in the world, through the prevalency of corruption remaining in us, and through the neglect of means of our preservation, so we, we persevere, and we might neglect the means. What that would mean would be communion of each other, the fellowship together of the body. 
the Word, prayer, the sacraments, baptism, communion. So we might neglect these means of the way that we persevere. Through all of that, temptation, corruption, neglect, we might fall into grievous sins. And for a time, we might continue in them. Whereby we incur God's displeasure and we grieve His Holy Spirit. We come to have our graces and comforts impaired. We have our hearts hardened and our consciences wounded, hurt, and we scandalize others. We bring temporal judgments on ourselves. Yet, shall we renew our repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. So what the authors of the confession, their Bible verses for everything that I just said and lots of them that go along with this, summarizing this, what they're saying is that when we stumble, God is displeased. His Holy Spirit is grieved. Our consciences also can be very numbed. Sin makes you stupid. The more you do it, the dumber you get. Our consciences can be dulled. Our hearts can be hardened. We, we can and will hurt others. And there will be consequences for sin. Yet, in all of that, we will not fully or finally fall away from God. We will be preserved. We will repent. This is very important. So, when we stumble, what are we to do? We are to repent with the assurance that God's Spirit, remember what Jesus said about the Spirit in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, the role of the Spirit is to convict of sin and judgment and righteousness. God won't fully or finally let us go. He will bring us back. And so we repent. And we rest. We rest not even in our own repentance, not even in our ability to be conscience, conscious of all of our sins. We rest on the assurance of God's grace in our life that He, the, the work is on Him, that He won't fully or finally let us go. And so He is able. The heavy lifting of and the doxology of verse 24 is that God is... God is able. The emphasis is on Him. And that, I believe, is the reason why Jude begins and ends with that you are beloved of God and kept by Jesus. And now to Him who is able to keep you. This is His work. Yes, there is calls. Yes, there is admonitions. Yes, there is encouragement. Yes, there is work. And God. God will keep us. So God will protect Second lesson from Jude is God will perfect. God will protect you and God will perfect you. Look at the second part of verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now some of your translations, again, I'm reading from the ESV, but I believe the ESV doesn't get it the best. Here in this translation of the second part of verse 24, because uh, some of your translations may say that he will make you stand blameless. 
before the presence of His glory with great joy. And I, I do believe that's the better translation because that's the more literal of the Greek word here. Is that He will present you blameless. He will make you stand blameless before His presence. He is able to keep you from stumbling and He will make you stand. God is the doer here. He alone can hold us up in His presence. One of my favorite psalms says, if you, O Lord, Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should count our sin, if, if you recorded it in the ledger, who could stand before you? Nobody. Nobody could stand. Do you remember the scene in, in Exodus chapter 33? It's right before this incredible self-disclosure of God um, to His people in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, He says um, uh, that I am God full of of steadfast love and forgiveness. It's one of the, the grandest self-disclosures of God to His people in the Exodus. It's right after He had cut with His own hand the Ten Commandments, uh, the two tablets of the covenant, and Moses was coming down off Sinai with those. And God discloses, reveals more of who He is to, to His people. Right before that, in Exodus 33, there's this exchange between Moses and Yahweh. And Moses says this. This is Exodus 33 verse 18. We, we have one of my favorite hymns by Augustus Toplady. Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be of sin a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. So that hymn was based on this encounter of Moses with Yahweh. Exodus 33.18, Moses said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, Moses, you cannot see my face. For man shall not look upon me and live. You don't know what you're asking. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. Rock of ages, cleft for me. And I will cover you with my hand. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face you shall not see. Why? Because you cannot look upon me and live. Man shall not see me and live. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, you will look upon the very face of God. He who protects you is the one who will perfect you. So that you might look Upon His very face. One day you and I will behold with our eyes what we now see by faith. <laughs> Can you imagine? You can't. I cannot. 
And can you imagine? If you, O Lord, should count our iniquities, who can stand? Who can stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. It's the continuation of that psalm. With you, there is forgiveness. That you might be feared. God will protect you. And God will present you blameless before his presence. How, how can that be? It is not because of your perfection. It is not. It is because of his sons counted to you. I, I was reading this week um, in a commentary about first Peter. We're preaching through first Peter uh, at the church that I currently serve. And there's this this passage in first Peter about Christ's ascension. And it, and it got my mind thinking about the significance of the ascension of Christ. Real, you know, that's where that's where we're left with Christ's death, resurrection, and then the last sight of Jesus on this earth was him ascending into the clouds with his disciples beholding it. And then the question is, why is that significant in the life of the church? What what place does the ascension in our doctrine have for us today? What, what does it matter that Jesus ascended? And I, I started reading an article that was fascinating to me um, because they were commenting about the significance of the ascension and they went to Romans chapter 8 that Jesus is currently, this is what theologians call the session or the current ministry of Jesus. Where is Jesus today? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for His people. Jesus is talking to God on your behalf. He, he is talking to the Father on your behalf. The Spirit is talking on your behalf. Jesus is talking on your behalf. And, and what this author said was that when you pray, God hears Jesus' voice. And, and I, I thought to myself, oh my, I, I just don't think about that very often in my life. And he says, and when God looks upon you, he looks at his son. Now, there is a spiritual reality about that, that again, in our finite minds, it is so hard to grasp. I've heard pastors say that God looks at us through his Jesus goggles because he sees his son's righteousness covering us. Now, he is working to change us and to conform us. This is Romans 8. That God's will is that you would be transformed into the image of His Son. And the way that John picks up on this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1-3 through 3 is this. So this is replete throughout the Scriptures. But in 1 John 3, 1-3, through 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. And we are. We're His kids. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And catch this. And what... We will be has not yet appeared. What you're going to be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I heard one uh, pastor who is now the preaching professor at Stanford University said that um, in eternity, when you are in the very presence of God, and, and if the angels were to look at us lined up beside Jesus, and I, I thought this was, again, an interesting thing, it, 
it, it struck my mind because I, I had not ever considered this. He said, if, if the angels were looking upon us and it was all of us and Jesus, they'd say, which one is Jesus? When we see him, we will be like him. We will be like him. You will be fully clothed in total, perfect righteousness. And it's the righteousness of Christ, which is yours. It, it is yours now and it will be. You will be like him. And so he will perfect us. He will change us. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 from one degree of glory to another. You are being changed and you will be fully and finally changed. Full humanity. Full glory. He will protect you and He will perfect you. And finally, you will praise Him. This, this doxology is a conclusion of praise from Jude. So he, he works us in here, right? But it's directed to God. Now to Him. Now to Him. Who is able to keep you. And to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Whose joy is it? Is it our joy? Is it God's joy? Yes. Yes. Is the answer to that? To our only God. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Each one of those words is worth unpacking and exploring. And Jude, it's almost as though he can't heap up enough of them. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority. Before all time, now and forever, let it be. Amen. This is Jude's worship at the end of his letter. This will be our worship. God will protect you. God will perfect you. And you will praise Him. One pastor defines worship as this. Worship begins with deep biblical thoughts about God. Robust, expansive truths about who He is and His greatness and His glory. Thoughts that in turn awaken passionate affections for God. Such as joy and gladness and delight and gratitude and admiration and love and fear and zeal and deep satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus. These in turn find expression in all of our life. Whether we're singing or speaking or acting or deciding, we make a way in our life for worship. It happens when our minds are gripped with the revelation of great truth about God. And our heart and affections are set on fire with joy and satisfaction and gratitude and gladness and admiration. And our mouths explode in songs of praise and proclamation of the incomparable greatness of God. Some people have a very low superficial view of what heaven is going to be like, of what eternal worship is going to be like. And, and they think, well, goodness, you know, angels with harps and halos and clouds and skittles and rainbows and roses and puppies, you know, and this is OK. How, how long am I going to have to be there before that's going to get old when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, 
We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Because in eternity, when you and I are face to face in the very presence of God, blameless before Him, you and I will never be able to tap the depths of His greatness and glory. We will spend eternity not with all knowledge. We don't become God when we die. We don't get all knowledge. You and I will spend eternity getting to know Him and we will never get to the bottom of it. Eternity growing in our admiration and our affection for Him. And you will never be able to get to the depths of who He is. Worship happens when our minds are gripped with the revelation of His truth. And our hearts and our affections are set on fire with joy. How, how does this happen for us? I, I, I want to end with a, a story that I think is kind of brings it back home when we consider who God is and what He's done. Who He is and what He's done for us. Uh, it's a true story. It happened two years ago uh, with a woman named Sandra Mendez Ortega. Uh, at the time that this happened, she's now 21, 22 years old. She was 19 years old. When she was 15 years old, she got pregnant for the first time. Uh, when she was 19, she was now pregnant with her second child. She spoke no English. Um, this happened in Fairfax, Virginia. She went to work for a maid service, house cleaning service. And this one house in particular, there were her and two other girls that would regularly clean it. And pregnant with her second child, um, unwed, extremely poor, uh, unable to speak English, she stole two rings, an engagement ring and a wedding ring from the, the woman who her and her husband owned the home. The rings were appraised and insured for over $5,000, which in the state of Virginia and our government, it was grand larceny. And so the police, uh, after the homeowners reported the theft, the police reported um, the police came and, and they spoke with the owner of the, the maid service. They interviewed the three women, all three denied. But Sandra's conscience got the better of her and she came back to her boss with the rings and said, I took them. And so she turned herself in, she confessed, and then the homeowners pressed charges. And so they brought her up on grand larceny. Um, the sentence was uh, fines up to $2,500 and 20 years in jail. A uh, two-day trial ensued. And the, the jurors looked at Sandra with pity and compassion. And, and what's interesting is the, the Washington Post account of this story. Um, they interviewed several of the jurors and one of them said, we, we had no choice. We had to convict her. The evidence was there. She stole and 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 the case could not be more black and white. So they convicted her of grand larceny. And they sentenced her to no jail time and one day's wage. Sixty dollars. And then they took up a collection. And the jurors raised eighty dollars. To pay her fine. And gave her 20 bucks.
before the, the court of God, you and I are guilty. You and I have committed crimes. You and I have stole from His glory that He will share with no other. And, and the, the penalty, the wage of that is our damnation eternally. We deserve it. And, and He paid it. For each one of us, He paid it. Justice was clear. The law is undeniable. What we are guilty of is evidential. And there's no going back. What His justice demands, His love provides. And, and when you and I see all of that with, with eyes that are not stained even by our own faulty thinking and feeling and sin, and all of that is exposed and pulled back in front of us, and, and we see more clearly than we ever could all that He paid for us, you and I will explode with eternal praise and worship for the rest of our time eternally. Now to Him who is able to keep you and to present you blameless, to Him be the glory and honor, majesty, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, You are so, so good to us. You have not given us what we deserve. God, You've given us Yourself fully and freely so that we might know and love You. And I pray God, for us, for the people of Powell's Chapel. God, that You would grow us as Paul prayed for the people of Philippi, that we would abound in love, grow in our love for You more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve, we might say yes to what is excellent and so be ready for Your return, Jesus. Amen.